usually our animals are like, oh, do they have food? Oh, nope, it's a gun. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hi. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to the podcast, of which this is the only episode that, much like back in high school, had a snow delay. That's right, y'all. It's the Raw Safari Podcast, and I am glad to have you with me again. And this episode, this one was supposed to happen months and months ago, but some interesting things happened at the place that we're going to be talking to, uh, which not only delayed the the episode, but um, frankly led to some interesting stories in it. You see, this episode takes place at the Fossil Rim Wildlife Center, which um, is in Texas. And Texas, as you may remember from last year, dealt with some of the craziest snow and ice that it has ever had to deal with. My guest today is Dr. Holly Hayfully, and we get into exactly what that looked like for Fossil Rim, and specifically for one of the endangered animals that they help breed and re-release into the wild. That's right, y'all. You've been asking for it. You've been clamoring for it. People always say to me, all right, enough with the red pandas and giant pandas and bonobos and gorillas and all the cool animals. When are we going to have a Rossafari episode about chicken? And my friends, today is that day. I don't know why, but ever since I was like a little boy, I've always found the word chicken funny. I will frequently insert it into conversations where it doesn't fit, using it in the stead of another word, or just kind of using it like a joke. But it's really not a joke. It's just me saying chicken. I don't know. I'm a weird human. We've we've established that. However, I will say that there is nothing funny about the situation currently facing the Atwater's prairie chicken, one of the most endangered species in North America. So today, you're going to get to hear all about the recovery program for the Atwater's prairie chicken and how it's being housed at Fossil Rim and what they're doing to help that species. It's a really cool story. And uh, like I said, it, it also goes into what they had to do when suddenly there were eight inches of snow in Texas. Who knew? Climate change, y'all. This ish is real. But even though a lot of the episode focuses on the chicken situation, I, I literally just started to giggle just saying the word chicken. Why do I find that word so funny? Anyway, even though it deals with the chicken situation, I, I giggled again. Um, we also talk about Fossil Rim because Fossil Rim is a pretty unique zoo in that it is a drive through safari park. So we are talking about cool hoof stock, including giraffes and a very very scary animal that I got to meet while I was at the park. In fact, I'm not going to lie to you. I have never been more threatened by an animal that I have met in person. And I have met elephants and lions and rhinos and all kinds of crazy stuff. So yeah, this interview has a lot of really cool stuff. It also has some slight audio issues. Now, we're doing a Zoom interview here, and uh, the audio is certainly not bad for a Zoom interview. But there were a couple of times that, for whatever reason, uh, my guest's audio decided to play my audio, kind of over hers, but on a delay. It only happens a few times, and it's always like when she's laughing. I think everything's very clear, but I did want to give you a heads up that you will hear some kind of audio ghosts of myself, and... Um, it is what it is. It's fine. It's it's a clear episode. I like this one a lot. Oh, and speaking of things that I like, Kristen Khalil, I like you. Also, Blake Alspatch, I like you. Everyone else might be confused, but I am saying this because Kristen and Blake are my two latest patrons. Welcome to the family, y'all. Now, I have mentioned on the recent bonus episode, but in case some of you skipped that one, and that's fine if you did, uh, Patreon is going to get a whole lot cooler when season two launches later this month. I've got a lot of really cool things 
that we're going to have going on for the patrons of the pod. And you can become one of those and support me and my mission here just by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. Of course, you can also Venmo me at Rossafari if you'd like to make a one-time donation to the pod. And of course, there are other ways to support without it being financial. Make sure you are subscribed to the pod. Leave me a five-star rating and maybe even leave a review. They really help people find the pod and they make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. And of course, make sure you're following along at Rossafari on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Rossafari Pod on TikTok. I know, I still, I, hey, it's there, whatever. Um, yeah, and that's, that's, that's some ways you could support me and, uh, and I'd appreciate it. So, uh, all right, guys, it is time for that amazing ad spot, followed by our episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, so... Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Holly Hayfley of Fossil Rim Wildlife Center. All right, so why don't we start with you telling me who you are, where you are, and what you do there? I don't know if I can answer any of those questions. But, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I am Holly Hayfley. I am the Director of Animal Health at Fossil Rim Wildlife Center, which is in Glen Rose, Texas. So I'm a veterinarian and um, my little department is uh, me, my associate veterinarian uh, and our veterinary fellow. So this is a position that we've had now for three years. It's a training position. Um, it's really to immerse um, a recent grad in uh, hoofstock anesthesia. So it's hard to get um, sort of in a regular zoo internship. So it's kind of filling that gap for folks. And then our full-time uh, veterinary technicians. So a small department, but um, we work obviously in concert with the animal care folks. And all told, there's about uh, 16 of us or so that um, take care of all the animals here. Wow, that's wow. a lot of animals. Yeah. Wow. Um, very cool. So can you, um, for the people that don't know, can you explain what Fossil Rim is and why it's a little different than, you know, the average zoo? Yeah. Yeah. So we're really, uh, well, we, we sort of fit in that category of zoological institution and we are a member of, um, the AZA, the Association of Zoological, what is it now? The, the Association the, of Zoos and Aquariums. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, um, we uh, we're different because we have a lot of space and really try to house our animals in a manner that is as natural as possible, which includes a lot of mixed species hoofstock herds um, on fairly sizable acreage. So, for example, our largest pasture is about 400 acres. Um, you know, we've got a herd of 30, some sable, um, 20, some waterbuck, uh, 20, some uh, gemsbok, 50, some addicts. So big herds, um, they're breeding herds. I mean, we really uh, consider ourselves more of a conservation uh, breeding center. So we are really all about a few things. Um, one is the conservation of species that are endangered or threatened, um, educating the public about that um, and about animals in general, 
in nature. Um, uh, training young professionals. So you heard me mention our fellowship before. We also have um, animal care internships. And of course, as you know, um, veterinary uh, students come and spend time with us too. Um, and then um, we try to take care of our land. So some uh, resource management. Um, and I, and I know there's something else in there too, uh, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> well, that's plenty. <laughs> but and- yeah, so so really, it's about space, and um, you know, uh, we have 16 people taking care of a thousand animals because they're out on pasture, so you don't have to like move them. The vast majority of our animals don't move in and out every night to a, a small enclosure that's indoors, so. There's less intensive management of, of some of the animals. Totally makes sense. And of course, if you're coming to Fossil Rim, you're not going to be walking around the zoo because it is a drive-through facility, right? Yeah. So the vast majority of our visitors come in their own vehicle, um, which you know was a really nice option during the uh, COVID uh, situation. Um, you could feel safe in your own car um, and drive through and sort of be the one in the cage, right? So, um, yeah, we do have a, 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 a children's animal center where you, at normal times, can sort of interact with some goats and stuff, but um, that's been closed. Uh, yeah, and then uh, we also have the ability to come out on like a guided tour, so you get a little bit more um, immersion and, and get to learn about our conservation more than you would necessarily on your own in the car, so... There's some options. Very cool. Yeah, I was I was lucky when when Zoe was there as an intern. I got my own guided tour from her. I got to come down. We did the drive through. We did the the children's area because she had gotten to know the people working there. So it was closed, and I got to feel special because I got to pet a goat. (laughs) uh, Goats are great, right? I mean, I don't know what it is about them, but. Oh, absolutely. Goats are amazing animals. <laughs> um, that That's one of the funny things when I when I started getting more into the zoos. If you would have told me that I'd be like taking selfies with goats at every zoo I could, I would have laughed. But yeah, they have more is. personality than a lot of people. So I guess that's what it comes down to. That's true. Although I think there are some ants that have more personality than some I people I've true. met. <laughs> <laughs> when did you decide, when did you know that you wanted to be a veterinarian? What yeah. path did you take? Tell me how you got to where you are. Uh, yeah, so, well, I think, um, like most people in this field, I, I've, I've always loved animals. You know, that's the classic answer, right? But uh, it's true. I mean, I remember vividly, you know, we lived kind of like in a, um, not a rural town, but like, you know, an hour outside of Boston. So on my little acre and a half growing up, I would watch bunny rabbits and birds and just being like obsessed with wild animals. Uh, so, um, and then, uh, I was really lucky in, um, my junior year of high school, I was able to spend one day a week, uh, at the Tufts, uh, uh, vet school wildlife clinic. So, uh, just, happened that we had a program that allowed us to do that at school. And I had met some people that were volunteering there. So uh, instead of going to school on Wednesdays, I I went out to the vet hospital, to the vet school, and, uh, you know, took care of little birds, cleaned um, snowy owl cages and eagles and uh, prepared their diets and interacted with the veterinarians. Um, uh, and then uh, one of those veterinarians, um, Dr. Mark Progress, kind of became my mentor. And as I continued uh, to volunteer there through college um, and sort of solidified the idea of becoming a veterinarian, uh, because I, I guess I didn't realize, you know, until I spent time there that there's vets that that's all they do is work with wild animals uh, in a rehab setting um, that kind of opened some ideas for me because I knew it was going to be wild animals eventually, hopefully. Um, there was a, a point in college where I was trying to decide between vet school and maybe going on to get like a PhD, but I couldn't see where the PhD necessarily went. 
uh, I knew I didn't want to be in academia. So uh, the vet option was, was like a tangible one. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> that, that worked out incredibly well for me. Uh, I've been at Fossil Rim for 17 years. So that's a little crazy considering I was hired initially to fill in for four months. So, yeah, yeah, I I mean, this doesn't happen anymore. So I don't want anybody listening to think that uh, this is an option nowadays because the field is so competitive um, getting into the the zoo vet world. But, yeah, I just really lucked out. Like I went straight from small animal practice um, to filling in to being hired as the associate vet. And then um, I became the director of the department. So. Uh, that was a crazy fast speed um, pace. But I think now after 17 years, I know a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you do. No, um, it, it, you really realize, you know, just as every year goes by how much you don't know. I think you really get to the point where that sinks in. But that makes sense. I can, I can understand that. I can relate a little bit. The more that I, I stick with my career, the more I'm amazed by the things I still have to learn, I think. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yep. Makes sense. Um, so, you know, in your current position, you do a lot of educating and a lot of, of helping younger people on this path. Yeah. Um, talk, talk to me about that. Is that something that you're passionate about? Is that something that, that matters to you? And why, why do you enjoy that? Or why do you secretly hate that? And you can admit <laughs> that now and it's fine. <laughs> no, I think it's a really important and uh, satisfying part of the job, right? So, you know, being able to help uh, open some doors and you know, do some of that initial educating of these students um, is rewarding. Um, and, you know, interacting not just with our veterinary students and, of course, our fellow, but um, also the animal care interns that, um, you know, they're often uh, really uh, interested, too, in, you know, seeing a necropsy or, um, you know, come in on a veterinary proce- procedure that they might not have ever been exposed to before. And, Sometimes we have some of those folks uh, uh, go on to be veterinarians that, you know, didn't come here in that uh, capacity, but then, you know, thought maybe they wanted to uh, go the keeper route, but then decided to move on to veterinary medicine. So it's a, it's, it is rewarding. And then to, to see where people end up, too, is fun over the years. That's very cool. Um, there's a, there's a trend on my podcast where almost everyone who's a keeper has said uh-huh. to me that, you know, well, I was a kid and I loved animals, just like you said. And then I wanted to be a veterinarian and then I realized I don't want to be a veterinarian. So it's yeah. kind of nice to know that it goes both ways too. That's, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, yeah, I want to be a vet. And then I found out about organic chemistry <laughs> or, which I barely passed. And then, you know, or, or like what they don't tell you. You, you froze. froze yeah. yeah. I, I lost your audio. I heard you say what they don't tell you. And then you were gone. It's time for interrupting, 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 interrupting John. Mm. And then she was gone again. Y'all, um, Fossil Rim is really out in kind of the middle of nowhere and the internet is not great and they had a huge rainstorm and it delayed everything for a while. Um, basically, uh, what Holly said was just that she really does enjoy teaching and and giving back and all of that good stuff and um, she was just referencing the fact that like it can work in all kinds of different ways. People want to be vets and then become keepers or want to be keepers and then get inspired to become vets and all that cool stuff. Uh, So when we get back to the interview, you're going to hear some kind of restarting as we had to, well, restart. And it was after a a pretty extended period of time. So um, we will now go to that part of the interview. Uh, well, I'm glad that, you know, you're able to find something that you're, you're so passionate about with humans, because I think sometimes that's the, the tricky oh, part yeah. for animal people. <laughs> it sure can be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Very cool. So um, talk to me a little bit about what it's like being a vet 
at this huge open area where animals are just roaming and, yeah. and you know, it's, it's gotta be different than like, you know, a keeper walks into an exhibit, sees that an animal is lame and calls a vet. So how yeah. does that all work for you guys? I mean, some of it's very similar, right? Because, um, our animal care folks kind of are that role as, as keeper and, Certainly for um, all of our carnivores that are in smaller enclosures and uh, mo- the vast majority of our our managed herds, uh, they're, they're all uh, very used to coming up in the morning for feed, the, the, um, the hoofstock. So they, you know, and, and our animal care folks know exactly how many males and females and calves are in each group. So they're able to get a, a count on everybody. And, um, you know, uh, we get calls all the time. Uh, 872 red is limping. So that that does happen. So that's a big, you know, a big part of it. Um, but being on 400 acres, if somebody doesn't feel good and they've decided to hide out in the uh, in the cedars, in the trees, um, it can make it uh challenging when we want to get our hands on somebody. So, um, you know, that, that, uh, is a little frustrating sometimes. I mean, usually we get it done when we need to get it done, but occasionally, you know, if it's been raining a week straight, um, it could be hard to access certain parts of the, uh, of the, uh, park and whatnot. But I guess, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges that all zoo vets have is, you know, we're very much, uh, we sort of specialize in the area of zoos, right? But that means that you have to be a generalist in your uh, practice. So we have to uh, treat everything from, you know, Madagascar hissing cockroaches, although I don't do a lot with them, I have to admit, um, to, although we did do surgery on one last year, believe it or not. Wait, Uh, okay. Pause and tell me that story right now. That's amazing. I didn't do it. But um, here's the good thing about having uh, veterinary fellows is that they're gung-ho to do everything. So (laughs) this poor little thing had like prolapse. It's like sexual organs. Uh, Yeah, which sounds terrifying and, in fact, probably is. So, um, yeah, I guess it wasn't so bad. She was able to like... uh, tuck it back in and suture it closed. So yeah, technically surgery on a cockroach. Yep. So that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so we take care of those little guys right now. I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but we've got a lot of um, Atwater Prairie chickens. So the chicks, uh, you know, they hatch anywhere from 12 to 20 grams. So that's like teeny tiny. <laughs> so, you know, we got to take care of tiny little guys like that. But we also have to be prepared um, to work on 5,000 pound rhinoceros. So, you know, having the that flexibility in our equipment and how we are able to approach the animals, it's all, it's all in there. So very much generalists, we've got to, we have to know a decent about, about, amount about anesthesia because the vast majority of our patients need to be under anesthesia for us to even get hands on them, right? So say that area where we're a little bit more in depth, but, um, yeah, so it's so that's, that's, yeah, that's a lot. And anesthesia is tricky with animals because, um, it's hard to really know exactly how to dose an animal, right? Like there's not a specific like giraffe anesthesia. We're using (laughs) general anesthesia and trying to figure out how to apply it to all these different species with different adaptations and different sizes. And, um, you know, so you have to know a lot about obviously their, their systems and how that works, but it's always a bit of a guessing game with anesthesia, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, so we're living, uh, luckily zoo veterinarians now have, you know, uh, 30 to 40 solid years of good zoo medicine behind us. Um, you know, not necessarily me personally, but that knowledge base exists now. And there's a lot of good books. Um, and there's folks out there that, um, you know, they're the person to go to for rhino anesthesia or giraffe anesthesia. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to, to work from that said, um, you know, you're saying, what about it is guessing. And so there's two big things that we hate, right? 
So if you bring your dog in to the vet and you're like, oh yeah, I need to have a stental procedure done. Okay, well, your dog's seven, so we're gonna give it a good physical exam before, you know, we're gonna listen to its heart and its lungs and make sure that's good. Um, and then we're gonna do some blood work before we do anesthesia to make sure that there's no interference with, you know, if there's some organ compromise, that they're still gonna be able to metabolize these drugs, et cetera. Well, for us to put our hands on an animal and listen to its heart and to get blood, we have to have the animal under anesthesia. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a catch 22, right? So, and certainly, and, and that's for like a healthy animal when you just want to do like a normal exam, like with no, no problem. So then you compound that with this animal is obviously sick, but the first thing we're going to do to it is anesthetize it. And we don't know its exact body weight because, you know, it's a sable antelope, so we don't weigh it all the time. So yeah, there's a little bit of guessing there, but you know, you know, we, the protocols that we use, uh, we use a lot. So there's some, there's a lot of comfort on our end with uh, what we expect and what, what our drugs are going to do. And, uh, you know, we use drugs with large safety margins so that, you know, you, you end up okay, but yeah, it's always interesting. And then, you know, you, and you do it enough where you're like, you know what, uh, I'm going to try something different this time, which our animal care folks love when we're like, oh, we're doing something new today. You know, like, why are you changing things when the last one went okay? It's because we can always do a little bit better um, with our anesthesia. So we're always tweaking things. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, and you know, as we talk about anesthesia, I think most people picture, uh, you know, you go, you have a lie down, they put a little mask on you. And I know you can do that with smaller animals, yeah. but how do you anesthetize a rhino or a sable antelope yeah. or something like that? How are you doing that? Yeah. So, <laughs> so most of our hoofstock, so sable, gemsbok, roan antelope, um, even smaller stuff, addicts, it's a Dama gazelle. Um, we remotely deliver drugs um, via DART. So uh, we have a few ways to do that, but the most common one, we use like a modified 22 rifle and a single use um, DART that holds the drugs in the body of the DART. And it actually has like a gunpowder charge. So we can load the drugs in through a needle and then... Um, that's mounted on the, on the dart. And then, um, the drugs, uh, get fired into the animal because when it hits that, that gunpowder charge goes off, pressurizes that chamber and squirts the drugs into the muscle of the animal. So, you know, we're, we're able to, uh, you know, usually our animals are like, Oh, do they have food? Oh, nope. It's a gun. Uh, so they're like up pretty close. So we don't have to start that far, but some of them uh, get wise to it and uh, we we have to take some longer shots. So, you know, 30 to 35, 40 meters is probably the longest shot we have to take. Now with um, species like rhino, um, so this is, this is not going to be uh, new to your uh, listeners that are in the zoo world, but for those who aren't, uh, rhinos are like actually like people. So they um, love to be petted and touched and they want human interaction for some reason. Um, and uh, so we can do more with them, right? So we don't have to usually dart them. Um, we can actually just hand inject them. So they come over looking for some rubs and we can just uh, take a syringe in our hand and inject them just like, you know, you would a dog or a cat. Or something. So that's a little bit easier. But yeah, so remote delivery of drugs. We have a couple of other tools that we use. There's blow pipe. So we used to use that a lot um, until we got this really nice spring-fired pole syringe. So that's like basically like a, it's sort of like having a syringe at the end of a six-foot pole so we can get close to animals, but not like so close that we're going to get mauled or horned. So. Fair. That's very yeah. cool. And that's, um, do you do that from the, from like a vehicle then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I <laughs> fell short there of going through the whole process. So yes, typically for a hoofstock, we're firing from, um, a truck, one of the work trucks. So they, they might expect food to come sometimes. Like I talked about the savvy, uh, herds that know we're coming for them. So that's wildebeest. They kind of have a herd mind and, uh, 
the adults are like, oh, they're coming for us. So they start running. So we actually have to pull tricks on them and like use our personal vehicles. Like, so it looks like you're a visitor in the park driving in your a normal car. And then we whip out the guns and, and get them. Um, so uh, sometimes we have to climb trees and hide out in the trees and wait for the wildebeest to come by. So that's fun too. Um, or we can pull the tour vehicle trick. So that's the, oh, look, I'm going to go in for some pellets. Oh, no, I got a dart. So that works well usually too. Um, but yeah, so after we get the dart in, which is the first hurdle, then uh, you wait for the animal to go under anesthesia. And the drugs we use for our hoofstock, um, they're pretty quick acting. So, you know, two to five minutes, we usually have the animal on the ground and we're able to approach them when it's safe. Uh, we get hands on them. And then after we do a quick veterinary assessment, make sure everything's okay, uh, we get them in the back of a pickup truck. Um, and that usually takes a fair number of people, depending on how large they are. And then we truck them over to the animal hospital. And then they, if we're just moving them or doing something quick, um, you know, we don't bring them in and hook them up to anesthesia, gas anesthesia. But if it's going to be a long procedure, then, yeah, we'll bring them in. And then just like, uh, you know, if you went to the hospital, you get intubated to protect your trachea and your lungs and to also serve as a conduit for the um, gas anesthesia to get in. So um, and then they get IV catheters and they get hooked up to um, EKG monitors. And, uh, you know, we're lucky we have uh, some pretty nice equipment. So they get they can get x-rays, they can get ultrasound, um, all that jazz. And then when we're done with our procedure, um, we, we can wake them up. Uh, the drugs that we use, uh, the injectable drugs that we use are usually um, very quickly reversed with some other drugs. So we can stand an animal up um, pretty quickly after they've been under anesthesia. And then we move them where they need to move. If they can go back to their pasture or sometimes they have to stay up at the hospital in a wooden holding pen because we've got to continue treatment or something. So... I bet when you were in vet school that you did not sit there and think, oh yeah, I'm going to be using a blow dart or a yeah. blow gun to, to, to shoot an animal, huh? That's, that that had to be an interesting skill set to learn. It is, it really, it is, it is interesting. Like, you know, after 17 years, sometimes I have to stop myself and be like, I have a pretty weird job. And like, you know, especially <laughs> when you do, when we do a unusually anesthesia for us would be like a giraffe or rhino you're like i wonder if anybody else has done rhino anesthesia today like because it's pretty i mean like you know not that many <laughs> it's kind of it would be a weird thing so that you know it reminds you and when you you know you were asking me to describe fossil rim i mean the real nice the best thing about it is being like well i've been at my computer for a couple hours i'm gonna go check on the animals so I get to drive out and see them, you know, like they really are living their best lives out there, just lounging, eating, uh, procre procreating, taking care of their babies. Um, so it, it's really nice to see them having a good life. So. Plus, you get to do the cool staff roads that that the normal That's people right. aren't allowed on. I got to do yeah. some of those when I was doing my tour, too. It was very exciting. Yeah. It gives you a different perspective on some of the pastures and stuff. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's like, you know, 90% of it's off the road, you know, the, the main road. So, yeah. And then the other thing that uh, one can start to take for granted, but uh, this time of the year it's hard to do, is that our actual – our property is so beautiful, you know, like it's not, not just the animals and, uh, being, um, you know, having, you know, being so grateful to be able to work with them, but it's so pretty out there right now. It's all wildflowers and, uh, the migrant, the, you know, like spring migrant birds are here. So it's, it's you know, vermilion flycatchers and summer tanagers and, uh, um, painted buntings and yellow bill cuckoos. And so that gets, I get a little excited about that when I see those guys. So that's fun. That's the second time that you've mentioned bird stuff. You're a, you're, even though you work with hoofstock, you're a secret bird nerd, aren't you? Yeah. Oh no, I'm a big bird nerd. If I was <laughs> like, if I could like 
have a second career or like, you know, go back and figure out how you could do it and actually make money. I would be, um, I would just, you know, be a bird watcher. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, All right. So uh, speaking of birds, we need to talk about uh, something very cool that Fossil Rim does, um, which is chicken conservation. Uh, (laughs) A very specific chicken, because otherwise that just sounds weird. But there is the Atwater's Prairie Chicken. And um, I feel like a lot of people listening, even people in the zoo world, might not know what that is or why we're saving something that, you know, we eat chicken for lunch every day or whatever. So um, how about we start with an overview of just what the bird is, and then we can talk about what y'all are doing. Yeah, so Atwater Prairie Chickens are a grouse. Um, So... There's a couple of grouse in North America, um, most closely related, the Atwaters is most closely related to the greater prairie chicken and the lesser prairie chicken. They're all fairly similar. Um, And they live sort of in the plains area of the central United States um, and then west. Uh, So you find like the greater sage grouse in, uh, you know, like the west ranging up into uh, Canada uh, Colorado, Montana, that kind of um, territory. Um, greater prairie chickens love, live up in Minnesota and then lessers in like Kansas and down through Western Texas and into New Mexico. Uh, but the Atwaters uh, is native to the Texas, Louisiana Gulf Coast. So in specifically uh, the coastal prairie. So, you know, why are they one of the most endangered birds in uh, the U.S. Well, because there's like less than 2% of coastal prairie left. So we really just have uh, transformed the environment um, that they're that they're native to. You know, these birds, you can imagine Houston, Galveston, that it's, it's just all people now. So there's no room for them. Um, so their population around the turn of the 19th century was about... Uh, a million birds. And then when the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Program uh, recovery program began um, in the early 90s, there were about 40. So it gives you 40 birds. Yeah. So that's when, um, you know, it was do or die at that point. And they took in about 19, 20 founder birds to start a captive propagation um, system. And Fossil Rim was uh, we were actually the first institution um, to breed at waters in captivity in 1994, the first year we were born. So we've been involved since the beginning. And um, it's really uh, a rewarding, but sometimes heartbreaking and always uh, exhausting uh, season, right? So we're what Fossil Rim's role is, is we captively rear these birds for release. Um, so the idea being that we might be able to establish a self-propagating uh, population of these birds if we can get enough of them out uh, onto their habitat. So there's kind of two places where we re- release birds every year. Um, one is the Atwater Prairie Chicken National Wildlife Refuge, which is about 50 miles west of Houston. It's a, it's over 10,000 acres, so there's decent space out there. Um, and then the, another area is actually on private land. So these are ranchers that um, have an interest in conservation and partnered with U.S. Fish and Wildlife to uh, host these birds. So they release them out on, on that uh, land. And the Nature Conservancy biologists monitor them. So that's been a really nice addition to have two release areas um, to work with. And so... Fossil Rim's role, like I said, is is propagating these birds. So right now, um, they're they're all hatching. So we, uh, oh, I could go into small population management, but I won't because everybody will fall asleep. But basically, we'll try <laughs> to, we basically know all these birds. They're in a computer base, a, a database, and we can match them um, in into breeding pairs. And what we're trying to do is breed the most unrelated birds in the population, right? So this is similar to uh, SSP, basically. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, we've done some episodes on that. Yeah, all these managed species are done similarly. It's the same with prairie chickens. You know, 
uh, bird number five is going to breed with bird number 12 because they're uh, not they're not closely related to each other in the database. Um, and then uh, we put them together uh, in uh, kind of late February, March. Um, and then they start uh, doing their, the males will start doing their breeding dance. So this, so uh, grouse are cool because they're known for their kind of interesting um, setup when they uh, are trying to breed. They, they're lecking species. So a lek is a congregation of uh, males, uh, they get together and they fight and um, do the display um, to attract the male, the females. And that's what the, the prairie chickens do. Of course, in the artificial setting, we've got a male and a female um, in their own little um, housing unit. <laughs> and then um, so we know what the eggs are going to be. You know, we know who they're coming from. But the males still go through their um their breeding display and it's really something to see. So you can just Google it. Um, but uh, they they have this whole call and then they inflate their uh, bright yellow air sacs um, and they do a dance where they move their feet really quickly. It's it, it's pretty funny and cool. And so, uh, yeah, so the eggs get laid and then we artificially incubate most of them. Although um, last year because of COVID and uh, you know, potential staffing issues. We let the hens sit on some of the eggs to incubate. Um, why don't we do that all the time? Because there's always a threat from snakes, even though we have it as snake proof as possible. But um, that, that's always a threat. Plus, you can actually get the birds to second clutch a little bit more if you steal their eggs away from them. Can you so, explain what that is? Uh, yeah, clutch people. is just like one group of eggs. So she'll lay like uh, 10 to 15 eggs in one clutch, sort of like an, an egg a day. Um, and then she's done. Then uh, she might be done, done. But if we take those eggs away, she might think, oh, I lost that clutch. Uh, so I've got to lay again. So we can sometimes get them to, to do it again. And sometimes they'll do it anyways. Um, so we artificially incubate the vast majority of them. So we have like, you know, me mechanical incubators that rotate the eggs, keep them at a certain humidity and temperature. And then uh, they get hatched out. And then we have to intensively hand rear these poor little things. They're really, really cute. And that's what keeps us going, I think, because they're kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> some of them are superstars and they figure out how to eat. Uh, the pelleted diet that we offer them, right? Because in the wild, for the first two weeks, they exclusively eat insects. But that's a really hard thing to replicate in captivity. So we sort of match their nutrients that they need in a in a pelleted diet. But it just must not be very exciting for them because some of them don't get it. Um, so we have to help them. We have to feed. We actually have to like savage feed them. So take tiny little amounts of food in a tiny little um, syringe and we put it down their throat. It's, it's actually, uh, I mean, I've done it thousands of times at this point in my life. So it's pretty easy, but um, you know, you just got to limp them along until the light bulb goes off and they're like, Oh, that's food. And then they start gaining the weight that they need to gain. So once these birds get to be about, um, 400 grams, uh, they, they'll start going out to the refuge. And, and about 75% um, of the birds that we raise, we might have about uh, 200 to 300 chicks every year. Um, and uh, two thirds, three quarters of those will go out to the refuge. And then we've got a whole back, uh, you know, next year's breeding group. So we'll replace um, birds that are already well represented or, uh, you know, that have died. I mean, they don't live very long. So um, and then uh, or that are old and they can't reproduce anymore. So, yeah, so that's that's that. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, how, how's the population doing? I'm guessing it's a well, little better than 20 yeah, now. But, yeah. So uh, I would say that for. Uh, for a long time, um, you know, like there are about a hundred birds in the wild. Um, but uh, this past, going into this breeding season, um, it, we're, we're at a, a maximum number of birds since 
I think it was like 1992 or something like uh, 178 birds uh, thereabout. Uh, I have to check that number, but I think it's pretty darn close. Um, so they they had a really good um, year out in the wild last year, and there were a number of successful broods raised. And really, you know, that's uh, it's hard won success over year after year of trying to figure out how to maximize their success, uh, both in captivity and in the wild. Um, one of the big thing, big things that happened um, back in 2013, 2014 is um, through some really nice research that they did out the, at the uh, Atwater Prairie Chicken National Wildlife Refuge, they figured out that um, suppressing fire ants, so these are red imported fire ants um, that came to us from Argentina. They're a nightmare, uh, but they're, they're everywhere in the South. Um, the, there's so many of them that they, they're eating all the insects. So if you suppress uh, fire ants, you actually get twice the a number of insects out on the prairie. And that's, gonna, that's really turning out to be crucial for brood survival in the wild. So now for a number of years, they've been doing widespread um, suppression of fire ants, and we're really seeing the benefits of that with, with increased brood survival. So that's been good. That is good. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. You had mentioned that um, you guys are very hands-on with, with the chickens early on, and yeah. every time that I have heard a raised, you know, for release yeah. story, it's the opposite of that. It's like we have yeah. to use puppets and not let them see our faces. Yes. And So how how does that work? Does I mean, obviously it is working, but do you have any idea yeah. or insight into why or um, – you know, yeah. just can you shed any light on why that's different than every other story I've heard about this? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question because it's been asked many times, um, you know, when I bring up how we do this. So I think it's just because they're gallinaceous birds. They're they're um, they're so hot, hardwired. These chicks are born and they're pretty precocial. So they, um, you know, they they don't require a lot of care from their mom. Um, in fact, the biologist in charge of the whole uh, the whole refuge, the whole Atwater program, he says that they're basically just a, a heat source. So mom takes them out and they follow her around and she, she's, a, she's an alarm and a heat source. So she, she'll holler if she sees a predator and they come running and get under her. And then they also get under there when they're cold. But she doesn't point the food out to them. She doesn't help them get food. They really are on their own essentially. So I think it's, it's, it's just their biology that they don't do any imprinting. Um, so that's really makes it so much easier. You know, like you're thinking of cranes and condors where these are really altricial birds where they require a ton of care. They're, um, they come out and they're, you know, pretty helpless. So those, those birds, parents put in a lot of work and you can really screw them up uh, if you're a human and you're taking care of them, because then they they imprint and they think, oh, maybe I'm a human, and then they have a hard time breeding, etc. But yeah, it doesn't happen with prairie chickens. Thank goodness we don't have to dress up when we're feeding them because <laughs> it's hard enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is that's very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So this this program's incredible, and and y'all are doing amazing work. Um, this has been a, a rough year for for it though, with with some of the snows, hasn't it been? Um, I I yeah. don't know if you know this, but we were actually supposed to be talking to each other months ago, yeah. and then crazy crazy snows happened. And um, tell me a little bit about what happened uh, yeah. there at Fossil yeah. Room in general. We uh, we do not see snow that often, and if we do, it's a dusting often of ice, and it goes away the next day. So in January, we got hammered with snow. It, out at Prairie Chickens, there was eight inches of snow. Um, the most I'd ever seen in my my time here was maybe three inches. Um, and it was heavy, wet snow. And our Prairie Chickens are housed in um, netted flights, pretty large netted flights. Um, and that netting... Uh, was just getting weighed down 
by the snow. Um, so we had to do an emergency evacuation of the chickens um, into uh, our actually our chick building, which was empty at the time. Um, so it was under a you know a metal roof. So we were able to move all those birds, and then we were able to mostly salvage one of our three uh, breeding flights um, by just spending all day getting the snow off the netting, which was not very fun. Um, but it was beautiful because of the snow. Um, so uh, and then we I love we, your we, attitude. That's so yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, we lost. We did lose two flights. So permanently uh, damaged, needed all new netting. Um, so that was an expense that, you know, as a non-for-profit uh, fossil rim was not excited to have, but um, we do get good support from uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife too. So um, that a grant um, is going to help us with that expense. But um, yeah, we were able to get uh, two flights going but then we had to move them again in uh, late February because we had another storm um, with a lot of ice. And uh, we're talking minus six degrees here at Fossil Rim, which is insane. Like, and it was below freezing for a week, which is, again, just like that snow is kind of unheard of for us down here. So uh, the birds... The birds all did fine, believe it or not. I mean, they were pretty stressed moving back and forth, and we were really worried um, what that was going to do to their ability to breed normally. But once we got them in their pairs, they were like, "Oh, I'm okay," and they did. They did good. We've got. We're going to have close to 400 eggs this season, um, so that's that's pretty average for us. That's awesome. I'm I'm glad to hear that y'all were able to get through that so well with with yeah. nothing but a delayed podcast. To yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, was we, obviously it, more it, it than was, that. We, yeah, no, I, that, I like that summary. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, tell me a little bit about just so with this program and the success and everything. Um, is this just a fossil rim and local to Texas thing, or are there other facilities that are doing this? Uh, what's the scope of this program? Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, it, it is a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Recovery Program. Um, but uh, there are a number of institutions involved. And over the years, uh, you know, some are involved and then they back out. So, but right now, um, the Houston Zoo um, has the other large breeding group. They have a similar number of birds as fossil rim. And then the Caldwell Zoo in, in Tyler, Texas, um, they have a small breeding group. Um, and then in the last couple of years, a brand new institution has come on board and they're up in Oklahoma. They have a long history that is the um, Sutton Avian Research Center. They have a really long history of um, caring for and breeding um, difficult and endangered birds. Um, so this is their first foray with Atwaters, um, but they have the capacity to really expand our captive breeding program. So uh, we're all excited about having another partner and, you know, the whole thing about not putting all your eggs in one basket. So that's really, a, a, you know, an important thing to consider when you've got, you know, just a handful of these birds, right. And that really rely on the captive programs. If they were all at one or two institutions, um, a catastrophe like snow or uh, a flood or uh, a tornado or a hurricane or a disease outbreak, um, could be super scary for the entire population. So having multiple places for these birds are is always better. Very cool. That's awesome. I I love. I'm I'm very into conservation, obviously, hence the podcast. And um, I, I really love um, charismatic species conservation. I'm a big red panda nerd and everything, as you can see yes, from my shirt. Yes. <laughs> um, but I also very few things make me happier than stories of non charismatic you know, rescues, whether it's surgery on a Madagascar <laughs> cockroach or saving chickens. Um, yep. so that's very cool. I, I really, I really love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very cool. So, uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about the Atwaters, uh, stuff before we get back to some other fossil rim stuff? Uh, no, I mean, it's a real, like I mentioned, it's a rewarding thing to be involved with, you know, seeing them, uh, go from, uh, egg to being released out on the refuge is always a happy day. So. We, uh, we are excited about the chick season and fear it at the same time because, <laughs> you know, that's end up spending 
oh, several hours a day out there treating chicks and whatnot, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I find the whole thing fascinating. Um, fascinating. And then I wanted to ask another question about uh, fossil rim in general. Mm-hmm. So cars. Yeah. Animals. Um, yeah. You're a vet. How, how, is, is that an issue? I mean, I know y'all are, are clearly taking great care of these animals. Yeah. So d- does, d- is that a good, is that a conflict that we have sometimes? And, and how does that affect things um, for you and at Fossil Rim in general? Yeah, it's really uncommon. Thank goodness. Um, we do occasionally um, get a frantic call. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's happened a handful of times. Um, since I've been here. So we don't actually think about it as being a big, big problem. Um, And it it rarely is. Um, One of the problems that does happen is people are sort of not supervised in their car. So um, they will ignore uh, the safety rule of not getting out and they will get out of their car and do really stupid things like walk up to a giraffe to try to get a good selfie um, so, you know, it's going to be a really good selfie because it's going to be the last picture they take of themselves, you know. <laughs> um, you know, these animals, yeah, sure, they, they're they taken care of and they, they they seem tame, but they're wild animals. So we uh, we all know how to be around them. They're, they can be very dangerous, but, you know, it's just something. If you do visit us, please follow our rules. Don't get out of your car. <laughs> I think that's a good rule at all the zoos. Yeah, yeah, I know. You see those videos, right? Uh, like, oh, I'm going to climb in the elephant habitat. What yeah, what wrong? could possibly go wrong? I don't know. I have no Amazing. Well, I'm glad that's not more of an issue because it is really, really amazing. Like getting to just drive up and have giraffes hanging out and stuff is is really cool. Yeah, I know. I mean, it never gets old, even for us you know, to when I, my family visits and we take my car, you got a sunroof, right? I mean, you have a giraffe's head in your car, you know, like, yes, I have, I actually have a couple pictures of that exact thing from when I was at Fossil Rim. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's very cool. So, um, yeah. And, um, you guys have some ostriches walking around as well, (laughs) right? Um, and hold on one second. I'm going to, Hey Zoe, who was the ostrich that was an asshole? 12. It's number 12. It's number 12. Okay. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Holly answered before you could. <laughs> yeah. She's a total yep. asshole. Yep. Yeah. So she's, yeah, I will tell you, so young. I've met, I've met, I've met hundreds of animals doing this yeah. podcast from elephants and red pandas and binturong. I have never been scared, even when I yeah. maybe should have, you know, yeah. when, when I've been up close to an animal and it's like, eh, you got to be careful. Yeah. The, the most scared I have ever been is when 12 was eating out of my car. Yeah. I thought 12 horrible. was going to murder me. Yes. So, yeah. so tell me about 12. I don't know. We did this deal where we, we brought in these young uh, ostrich. I think we exchanged like our really mellow older ostrich for these young ones, which was a mistake, I think. Well, the other ones are fine, but. 12 is just not nice. I don't know what her problem is, but yeah, you got to watch it with her. She, uh, she'll just bite you for no reason. And I don't think they can do that much damage, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they can, if you get out of your car, ostrich are quite dangerous actually, um, cause of their legs, but, um, you know, they're, be- they don't have teeth. So, you know, not too bad. <laughs> That's but I hear you. She's awful. I don't. Yeah, like yeah. E- easily the the scariest animal I have ever encountered. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So um, obviously, you guys are an incredibly amazing conservation organization. But I always like to open up the floor um, to see if there are any other ones that you'd like to give a shout out to, yeah. or maybe a a pitch for how people could yeah. help you guys out or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think um, you know I I would be remiss if I didn't quickly mention sort of our other two big conservation things. So fossil rim uh, is really into cheetahs. So um, we have one of the largest groups of cheetahs in North America. We're one of the um, largest breeding centers for the, for that species. So, um, and we actually do a lot um, to manage that species. And I'm the SSP, a veterinary SSP advisor and, 
our carnivore curator is involved on the management level, both the SSP and also the uh, um, ZAA um, organizations, uh, Cheetah Group too. So um, yeah, we do Cheetah. Uh, we have 29, I think, right now. I never know exactly how many because <laughs> there's too many. Um, so that's fun. And then um, we obviously we talked about hoofstock a lot. So Fossil Rim has been involved with um, the amazing uh, conservation of scimitar horned oryx for uh, quite a few years. And in 2016, um, after several years of planning, uh, the um, first scimitar were released into their uh, native Chad, so in, in uh, the Sahara-Sahalan area in northern Africa, um, where they had lived historically. But since the late 80s, they've actually been extinct in the wild. So this is a large antelope, 400-pound, uh, beautiful white antelope that was gone from the wild. Um, they, none existed. And only because um, institutions like zoos um, and also private ranches, a number of those, uh, a lot of those exist in Texas where they have large numbers of these animals um, in their possession. Um, because we had those animals in captivity and because they existed in Abu Dhabi, who's the, uh, who started this release program and is funding it, um, they, we were able to put these animals back and there's almost 400 of them now in the wild. Wow. So there were none. And now there's, there's almost a self-sustaining population out there. So that's huge. I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest release programs and it's been exciting to be part of that. Um, our associate vet, Julie Swenson, um, and our hoofstock, our animal care director, Adam Ayers have been over there on a number of occasions to help with the release. And, um, it's, it's, it's cool. It's exciting. And it's fun to see those animals breeding out there and doing well. That's amazing. I mean, it is. They, they live right here in our front pasture. And actually some of the animals that have been born at Fossil Rim are now in Chad. So crazy, right? You come to Texas, you think, oh, I'm going to Fossil Rim. Well, you might be looking at an animal that's going to end up uh, living the rest of its life in Africa. That's crazy. That is. That's so cool and and so impressive. I feel like I feel like we could do like a month of episodes just talking <laughs> about all the cool stuff you guys do. But I also know that you are too busy for that. So um, yeah, the chicks. Have, yeah. I can hear the chicks calling. <laughs> there. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, "Oh no!" It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. Well, I mean, poop, right? Veterinarians get really excited about poop. <laughs> so, I mean, in general, we love our poop because it tells you a lot about what's happening with the animal. But as far as gross stories, I mean, I guess I would, I. I mentioned necropsies earlier. I should explain what those are. So necropsy is basically an autopsy on an animal. And um, that can be some of the grossest stuff we do, right? Because, you know, it's dead. And sometimes um, if, you know, you don't get to it right away, it's not super fresh. And rumens are gross. Rumens are the fermentation chamber that, uh, that like ruminants like cows have. And guess what? It stinks. And no matter what you do, you wear three sets of gloves, you wash your hands five times. It doesn't matter. Your hands are going to smell like rumen for the day. So, yes, that's my disgusting story. Rumen smelling hands. Nice. I, uh, I, yeah, I actually had the, the pleasure, is that the word yeah, of, sometimes. of being a part of a, uh, a wildebeest necropsy. Oh, I, good. Yes. I did not do any cutting or anything, but I did some yeah. handling of bits and, I mean, um, they're, they're interesting. It, it is. It's totally fascinating. And, you know, just, I mean, biology, it's cool. Bodies are cool. It's neat to see what things look like. And, uh, you know, for us, it's important work because necropsies give you a lot of information, not just like 
um, you know, if you don't know why an animal died, but also like long-term disease surveillance, what's killing or what do you find in your animals when they die of like age-related changes? You know, our animals, some of them live a really long time, a 22-year-old addict. Well, what's it got going on? Oh, it's really fat. <laughs> but maybe its kidneys don't work anymore because it's so old. So, you know, th that's the kind of stuff that we get um, from those necropsies. They're really important. And then that's actually a huge teaching opportunity um, to bring it back to that um, because, uh, you know, you don't, you might do a week of gross necropsies at school. Um, so you, you get an opportunity to, you know, really learn how to do a good uh, hoofstock necropsy while you're here. Maybe. Doesn't happen all the time. But. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, good. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. It was fun to talk to you. And there you have it, folks. An awesome interview with uh, Dr. Hayfley that I just really, really enjoyed. I think the whole chicken conservation thing is just the coolest. All right. You can check out Fossil Rim on Instagram and Facebook at Fossil Rim. Shocker. I know. Now, I got to get going before number 12 finds me and finishes the job. But one last quick thing. I had a good friend who is also a fan of the podcast reach out to me, Liz Dunlevy, and point out to me that um, whenever I say things backwards other than just saying that credits backwards is Stiderk, I put the letters backwards, but I don't actually change the order of the words. So, um... I've kind of been lying to you all for the last year. Uh, I just didn't realize it. Um, that one made me laugh. So uh, I'm now going to say this properly. Uh, but yeah, keep in mind, y'all, that Atwater's Prairie Credits backwards is Stiderk Ariarp Sretata. Okay, there it is in the right order. But it still feels weird not having the last word be... Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.